He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. He's outspoken. You will tell your kids and your grandkids and your great, great grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise. And he was the greatest world heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas. And you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. Right here, right now, this is the Triple Threat Podcast, being brought to you today, empowered on the two-man power trip of wrestling podcasting empire. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only JP John Paz, and on this show, we are joined by the one and only, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, number one in your hearts, the one and only franchise, Shane Douglas. Shane, welcome into episode number 84. Like 1984, this is, not, this is not the George Orwell episode, right? Big Brother is probably listening in, but we'll just say he's not. <laughs> and if he is, fuck you. But let's let's roll with it. 84, we got a lot of good stuff to talk about. Yes, Big Brother tuned in two weeks ago, and he's still uh, feeling the yeah. effects. <laughs> Zapped you. <laughs> the zap heard around the world. But speaking of heard around the world, uh, this week... I mean, we talk about passings on this show. We talk about legacies. We talk about unfortunate... Uh, early deaths when it comes to certain wrestlers, but this one hits home very specifically as Chris Pally's, also known as King Kong Bundy, passed away over the weekend. We found out late, late Monday night into early Tuesday morning uh, of the passing. Um, this one hits home in a major way, and Shane, we're going to talk about it with you a lot. John and I talked about it on our other podcast, The Two-Man Power Trip, and just in brief fashion because we had just announced Chris for the big show in Richmond at TMPT Con. So we had just right. announced him on uh, uh, just a couple days before. I mean, it was it was just so strange. We had just done that, but on the other side of the two-man power trip, I mean, John has been working with, with Chris for, I would say, about six, seven months, uh, just working on bookings, working on getting King Kong Bundy back out into the mainstream, and to hear about this passing and to see how this has unfolded, this is obviously, it's quite tragic. It's very unexpected. But Shane, a guy like King Kong Bundy, a name like that, you know, what are your first uh, impressions of hearing of Bundy's passing, uh, especially at the, uh, the the young age of 61? Uh, way, way too young, first of all. But uh, early Tuesday morning, I had gotten up, uh, probably about four thirty, five o'clock and I was in the bathroom, you know, 
going about his part of my day, and I heard a text come up on my phone, which is sort of odd for that time of day. Uh, a couple of minutes later, I came in to check it, and it was from a good friend of mine that sent me just a picture, you know, King Kong Bundy dead at 61, and I was stunned because I had just seen Chris, uh, I say Jesse, in this business, we say just for you know, the last couple of months, but I had seen him, I think it was like December, uh, in Philadelphia at the uh, convention there. Um, and not long before that, I had seen him in Atlantic City at the convention. And, you know, he, you know, Chris was, to me, one of the good guys, you know, one of the guys you always liked seeing, uh, you know, always had a, you know, a quick comment, a quick story, you know, ask you how you're doing, that kind of thing. Uh, a very down-to-earth guy. And, you know, we've reached the stage now where there's been so many depths in our business, right, that, you know, you get sort of immune to it. Uh, but occasionally, one comes along that, you know, still shocks you, you know, stands the hair up on your neck. And uh, that was me on, on uh, Tuesday morning whenever I got that text about uh, about KKB, about Chris. You know, he... Uh, for me, you know, when I went to WWF in 1990 the first time and was up there doing jobs like in 1985, 86, uh, at that time frame, you know, he was always, you know, some of those guys would like sort of walk past you like they didn't see you. Uh, not not Chris. You know, Chris was always, hey, kid, how you doing? And, you know, or if you, you know, come back from the ring and he'd say, hey, good job out there, kid. You know, way to go. That kind of, it just made you feel comfortable for being, you know, for being there and, that's a really intimidating dressing room when you first walk in there. Uh, but yeah, just shocked. You know, 61 years old, I, I mean, I consider that by every measure today to be way too young uh, to be passing away. And, you know, I mean, it's, you know, we can get into a little bit more, but I mean, it's face it, you know, Chris was not a health nut. You know, I mean, he was not, uh, you know, somebody who was watching his diet. Uh, but, you know, and, and had been a lifelong of that, you know, and, and you go back and you watch the matches that he had and you see a guy that size, you know, like when he did the, the, the miss splash off the cage, uh, you know, things like that for a guy that size, that was damned impressive. And, you know, he, uh, you know, was to me, one of the integral core guys in WWF then that made that company. You know, you got your Jake Roberts and your Paul Orndorff and your Bobby Heenan and your Hulk Hogan's and, you know, all that, the Macho Man's. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I know I'm missing people, so please don't troll me and say I didn't mention somebody. But Chris was certainly one of that team that, that, that created that WrestleMania, the whole WWF slash WWE now. Uh, you know, he, he was an integral part of that, you know, and, uh, you had said before we went on the air about the you know the outpouring of, from the fans. Um, uh, the only thing that breaks my heart whenever I hear that is you know, that Chris was such a good guy, and I think he was starting to get the feeling like he'd been forgotten or you know you'd be away from the business, out of sight, out of mind. And it's too bad that he didn't get a chance to see that you know that that kind of outpouring from the fans. That it takes something like a death to to you know to see that and. Uh, it's a shame. They're passing one of the good guys. I always look at that the next day. You know, where were, <laughs> not to say where were you two days ago when, you know, he was still alive, but you see the outpouring. It takes about, you know, a couple hours in this, this cycle, the way we get news now, for people to really take it and run. And, and you really did see an outpouring uh, from the fans. But I want to bring John into the, to the fold now. 
because this news, like I said, was breaking late Monday and early Tuesday. We had received a couple of phone calls kind of asking, you know, where are you, where has he been? Nobody's heard from him. People are trying to get a hold of him. Uh, but John, more specifically, you know, in the grand scheme of things, and obviously not getting reported in many places because they wouldn't know this, but John has worked so closely with Bundy over the last six to seven months that if anybody's going to give us an idea of what those last six to seven months were like, it's going to be John. So, John, I mean, I want to welcome you in now. And obviously, we've talked about it at great length over the last two to three days. I mean, it's such a huge passing for wrestling. But then personally, you know, the kind of the impact that he's had on you as well. But kind of give us an idea, you know, what has he been like over the last six to seven months of his life? You know, it's funny with him. He always is, like as people always said, oh, he's so grumpy. But he's always grumpy to me in like a good way, in a, in a fun way. He was always like, you know, not really complaining, but, you know, he always had something kind of negative to say. And I, But it was always with a little mix of like a little bit of comedy. It's kind of funny. Like, you know, like, why the fuck did this happen? Why the fuck did this idiot do that? You know, something but something very funny. And I got to know him pretty damn good over the last uh, six or seven months, you know, specifically. Uh, pr- literally probably talked to him, I'd say, at least once or twice a week on the phone and maybe texted, like, not every day, I'd say, but maybe every other day we'd probably text, had nice long conversations, usually, you know, about family and stuff, and then we'd talk about some bookings and then talk about what we wanted to do when we, when we came out with this podcast, how we're going to build it, and... Uh, I just love kind of like, you know, you mentioned a guy's name to him and he always had a good story. Sometimes it was funny. Sometimes it was really negative about the guy. Sometimes really positive about the guy. So, I mean, it was always a, a trip kind of talking to him. And I'll, and I'll always remember this great line that he always used to say to me, like if we were in a discussion, like, for instance, I would say, oh, Bret Hart, he's the best wrestler ever. And he's like, oh, Bret Hart, you know, he was a little guy. He wasn't a great wrestler, you blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, well, I was like, I think, I think I'm right in here. He's like, he's a great worker, blah, blah, blah. He's like, who was in that blue cage with Hogan? Was that me or was that you? And we always like, you know, like a funny joke and like how he kind of would always win the the argument that was his winning the argument all the time he would say that i was like well i guess you're right you know you were you were the one in hogan headlining mania i was like so i guess bret hart's not that good then because i guess you're always right and i'm always wrong because that so i just remember those little things just those little funny quirky moments with him and i feel like even when people were like oh he's cranky or oh he was being mean some of it was him just ball busting and him just kind of ribbing. Yeah. Shane, I know you would appreciate that because you love a good rib and a good ball busting. But that was oh, like, yeah. that, was, that was just Chris, big ball buster. Yeah. And I think it was like sort of a, like a, a defensive, uh, uh, what are these, what's the phrase? Uh, like a defensive device. You know, like, like just, it was, that was his way of disarming you, you know, because I think, especially early on, you know, uh, uh, up there, you know, once they started getting to the point of breaking kayfabe, uh, you know, he was such a big guy, you know, especially back. I mean, he's a big guy, period, even now. But back then, he was just a massive guy, you know, to an average human being. And, you know, you'd see this big, bald behemoth come walking through. And I think that a lot of people, you know, when you look at him, and especially if you watched the show back then, you you had a preconceived notion of King Kong Bundy, you know, the snarl and the lip up and that kind of thing. And I think Chris did that, like his way of disarming you. You know, like, hey, I'm not a bad guy. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna bust your balls and, you know, like disarm you. Uh, I can't recall any time, and I'm sure there was a time or two, but I can't recall a time where, you know, he would ever go like for the jugular. You know, like when he'd come to you and say, hey, fuck, you know, like what? 
he would dig, like you said, he would throw digs at you, you know, little comments and stuff. Uh, but you, you, you always knew that it was like a, like a, like a rip, elbow to the ribs, you know, like, you know, jacking with you. Um, but I think that he used that, you know, that, like I keep saying, I think, I'm pretty sure he used that as a defensive mechanism, you know, to disarm people. If, you know, this big, scary looking dude, the bald head, you know, the shoulders of water as a doorway, uh, you know, that he would do that to disarm people and, and uh, you know, just sort of drop their guard a little bit so that they weren't afraid of him or, or, or uptight or, or uh, uh, you know, avoid him. You know, that was his way of, you know, sort of, I think, bringing people in. And probably some people didn't take it, you know, uh, as, he, as he probably meant it. Uh, because, I, you know, there, when you think of some guys, you, you, there's some guys you think of that are just assets, right? I'm, <laughs> I think of myself in that group, right? So, you know, sure. the, the person that's going to say what they're going to say, better, for worse, whatever. Uh, I never saw Chris that way. You know, he was always somebody that, you know, would come into the dressing room and say hey to everybody, uh, you know, just a professional at work and going about his, uh, his profession, his business. Um, but, you know, it's, I know exactly what you're talking about, though, because, you know, he, he would do that and then, like, he would make a comment, especially when there were other people standing around. He would make, like, that kind of a comment, you know, the elbow to the ribs comment, and then, you know, see how you reacted to it. And then, you know, if you'd, if you'd watch Chris closer and he'd say it, whoever the target was that he was saying it to, he would then scan the room and like make an eye contact with a couple of people in the room. Like, you know, like, Hey, are you getting, you know, are you in on the rib here? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, he's a you know, really funny guy. If you, if you sat and listened to his stories and, and those kind of little barbs that he would throw around, uh, he's, you know, quite humorous. I could say safely. I'm sorry, John, you can go in a sec uh, safely. And John knows me better than anybody. In previous years, Bundy could have made me fold like an accordion. I've been a little stronger in the last couple. I, I've gotten a little bit more of a thicker skin. But, man, he knew how to read me and play, tried to play me like a fiddle. I can't say my, uh, my tag team partner might have uh, you know, poked the bear a little bit and told him that it might get to me. But that's just one of the things as you say that. You know, he, uh, that's, you're 100% on the money. Shane, I was going to say we did – me and Bundy were playing a great rib on Chad. And Chad said it didn't bother him, but or he forgot about it or whatever. But at, there was one point where uh, Bundy's like, oh, yeah, yeah, get my phone number from John. So I told Bundy, I go, you know that if I don't give him the phone number, I go, you know he's going to be pissed. He's like, what do you mean? Why? I go, trust me. I go, I was like, trust me, whatever. So then he's like, kind of like, kind of like laughing maniacally. He goes, he goes, do me a favor. He goes, don't give him the number. He goes, I want, I want to see how. You know how how good he push, <laughs> pushes buttons. Yeah. So at, at so at WrestleCade, Chad mentioned something to him about oh you know he never gave me the phone number. Bundy called me over. Chad walks away. He goes oh he goes I totally just baby faced Chad. He goes but don't give him the number. He poking him. <laughs> so he was still yeah, busting balls. Yeah, that's that's him to a T. I mean that is the exact Chris that I that I've always known. Him. You know, I'm trying to allude to in these in these entire stories, but. You know, he was a ball buster, but he did it. It wasn't to be a prick. You know, he was a ball buster to, to humor himself and, and, and humor the room. That, uh, it almost came back to, uh, I guess, eternally be a part of the rib. And when I got the call on Monday night asking, had I talked to him, I wanted to say, well, I'm technically not allowed to have his phone number, so I can't really help you. <laughs> 
out of the loop, kid. He is funny like that because even with me, um, of course, you know, at, when we had it for autograph signing and stuff, of course, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going to get a few autographs for myself. I'm going to give them to, you know, whoever. I'm just going to take a couple or whatever. So I was, I had him, and all of a sudden he goes, why am I signing this? Who am I signing this for? And I'm like thinking to myself, I was like, is he kidding? Is he ribbing? What's he what's doing? And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden he's like, why are you on this side of the table? Like, say, like whatever. It's like, what the hell? And all of a sudden you see that, like, that smirk, and he's like, ha. <laughs> Yeah. It's like a fuck with you. He wanted to see my reaction. I was like, what the hell? Is, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? Yeah, he would humor himself. And, you know, especially yep. at those yep. uh, conventions, right? You sit there and, you know, it's, sometimes it's a madhouse with a line out the wazoo. And other times it slows up, uh, you know, with the different waves and things and the fans. And I, that, I would guess, because you guys have done a lot more in the conventions with them, I would guess that was, that was probably the time uh, when Chris would throw those barbs, wasn't it? Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the thing about him is, is you know, there is that side of him. He loves playing the ribs and, and all this other stuff. But, you know, deep down, such a nice guy. Like I mentioned to Chad yeah. um, early in the week, he would give me, like, if I had to pick him up or drive something, he would give me gas money and stuff. It's like, it's like okay, like, that's a little, you know, too much. Like, what do you, what do you mean? He goes, no, nah, no, nah, take it, take it. And he goes, oh, you know, I sold uh, a couple figures I didn't think I was going to sell. So, you know, here's the money from that. It's like, it's like, whoa, well, well, you know, uh, you know, we never made an agreement for that. You're not supposed to do that. He would just do things He's like, oh, and I'm buying your lunch day. It's just nice things that yeah. you don't really get from everybody. Yeah, he, he, that's, that doesn't surprise me at least, you know, hearing that. Like the last time I, well, what, I keep saying last time, but the, the, the last few times when we were in Atlantic City, uh, you guys were around the corner from where Dominic and I were. And I came over to talk with you guys about something and, and didn't even realize he was there until I got around the corner. And if you remember, the first thing he said to me is, how's your son doing? And, you know, that, that was Chris. You know, most guys in the business, well, hey, Shane, how you doing? That, you know, would talk about wrestling, whatever. But here, King Kong Bundy, this big monster, is asking me how my kids are doing. You know, it's just that that was Chris to me. You know, just a, just a really caring person that, that, you know, whether he gave a shit or not about my kid, I'm, I'm sure he did, but I'm saying that was him, you know, that he was taking the time to ask that kind of a question. And, you know, when I said, if you remember when I said, uh, you know, I'm around the corner with Dominic Benucci, said, oh, you're with Dominic? Dominic's here. And, you know, he hadn't seen Dominic for probably since he was a kid in the business. And, you know, just how it keeps coming full circle, you know, like, uh, you know, there I am was that kid with King Kong Bundy and he was that kid with Dominic Danucci and Dominic was that kid with somebody before him. Just how it's how the business keeps you know cycling that way. And that day, very specifically, and I will never forget this, is that where we were, obviously, you know, if you know wrestling conventions, you know the rooms can get a little crazy. In this instance, we were placed in not a great spot, and that was due to some of the disorganization of the event. But one thing that really stood out, Shane, was even the fact that it was just us there. You were the only person that came over to say hi to him. So obviously, Bundy wasn't the most mobile guy who can come around and go shake everybody's hand yeah. at every table. If he so felt to, I mean, for what he's done in his stature, he didn't necessarily need to go shake some of these people's hands. But you were the only one that came up to him. And we were surrounded by a ton of other performers. And I found that to be quite shocking that nobody... And he would sit. And he would sit next to me at one point, and he said, "Is that so and so?" And I said, "Yeah." And he just went, "Huh." 
you know, almost to be like yeah. kind of the same thing. Like, like there's no respect anymore in the business that you can't come over and shake somebody's hand just because, you know, maybe if you heard something about them. And that is where I also, you know, the fact you did come over, I equate kind of the same reputation that Bundy has with what you have and how people say, oh, well, you know, Shane is, he's, he's an asshole and he's this and he's that when you guys could not be, and I mean an asshole in a lovely way, I love you to death, but you know what I mean? Like people have this perception of you that you Russo Bundy, uh, you know, David Schultz guys that have these reputations for being quote, you know, jerks when all you got to do is get to know the person. You see the other side of them. You get to see the, the heart. I can't even tell you in the few times we did the conventions with Bundy, how many freebies he gave out to little kids or, you know, Oh, you're giving this kid, you're giving this guy a discount or you're doing this nobody nobody does that and that day really stood out especially with the handshake i could not believe that nobody did come over to him yeah you know that's this and I, I i try to wrestle with this in my head like is this a is it a disrespect thing is it a an intimidation thing uh is it you know like more like on a personal level like, i don't know the guy so i'm like i, I feel awkward going to say hello I, I don't know i'm sure it's probably a combination of all the above but where I, the way I was trained to come in, into the business, uh, when you walk into that dressing room, especially when you're the young boy walking into that dressing room, it is incumbent on you to walk around and introduce yourself to everybody in that room, shake everybody's hand, to, to, not to blow smoke up their ass, but to show the respect for them. Because, I mean, let's face it, uh, when I was a kid coming into that dressing room, I hadn't drawn a dime anywhere. Uh, I certainly hadn't learned my craft yet. And I was hoping to learn from these guys and, and, and have them impart me with some wisdom on the business. And unlikely that's going to happen if I walk in and throw my bag down and act like I'm all that in a bag of chips. Um, so I, I don't know. You know, for, for any of the younger guys and, and women in the business listening to this, when you see guys, like, first of all, you can see now like with Bundy, you don't know with any of us if we're going to be at that next page pay-per-view that next convention that next show uh take the time to go over and say hello introduce yourself uh because you know hey it, it may be the last time you know what's the saying tomorrow's promise to no man right but uh as you can see in this business uh you know my neighbor was asking me earlier today you know why are there so many deaths in wrestling you know you know she's in her 80s herself and she's always you know <laughs> she keeps up with that stuff and i I said, well, you know, if you stop and think about it, how, you know, we we really burned the candle at both ends and the middle for decades on the road, uh, throwing ourselves, getting thrown around, getting hit with things, slammed, knocked through things. Uh, but even if it was all done with smoke and mirrors, you're traveling. Back then, it was 340, 350 days a year, multiple shots on the weekends. Uh, you know, you're really putting your body through an awful lot. Just, just as you know, as as the time flies, as the, as the clock goes round and round. But then you add on top of that what we were physically doing, then having to you know, in my case, get you know, in a lot of the guys' cases, getting into the gym, training hard, working out. Well, you know, a lot of times after a match, for a day or two afterwards, you feel like shit. You know, your back hurts, your neck hurts, your shoulder hurts, your knee hurts. It doesn't matter. You've got to get in the gym and work out because part of your gimmick is to look a certain way. And, you know, so you have to constantly push those things through. Then on the mental side, the emotional side, 
when you stop and think that, you know, a lot of guys uh, have kids at home, uh, you know, even the ones that don't have family and friends at home, that just sort of goes to the, to the wayside. You know, like if you got a kid, how many, I would say it's probably a very few number of wrestlers that were on the road back then got a chance to see their kids' first words, first steps, first birthday, first day of school uh, for their friends. Like I know in my case, uh, you know, I, we had a really tight core group of friends that for several decades of my life became acquaintances because it, you'd see them at Christmas at a Christmas party or whatever, you know, and, and you know, so that on both sides, the physical side and the emotional side, this business takes its toll and nobody's complaining about that. Nobody's griping or saying, boy, you know, I, woulda, shoulda, coulda. Uh, we all lived the dream. We, we pursued something that we wanted to do. Uh, the one thing I don't think that any of us deserve at the stage, like where Chris was, is to be forgotten, overlooked, ignored. Um, because rest assured, when you watch WrestleMania next month, as all big and glitz and glamour as it is, that started in part with a guy named King Kong Bundy. And uh, had it not been for guys like Chris and so many others from that generation, uh, there would be no WrestleMania-type Super Bowl uh, show every year. You know, so th those big, massive shoulders and that bald head of King Kong Bundy is as responsible for that as is Hulk Hogan, as is Macho Man, Roddy Piper, Jake Roberts, all the rest of those guys, because he was part of that core team. So the young people out there, again, take the time to go over and introduce yourself to these people. Uh, you might just learn something, you know, along the way. For a guy like that that's been around the business, I'm sure there's something that somebody like a King Kong Bundy can, uh, can impart on you. It's funny, like the first time that we really got to meet and we were working on a signing and, you know, I got to go to the show you were working that night and you were in the locker room and I, I don't know if anybody was intimidated to come over to you, but I just kept on kind of moseying by <laughs> and anytime I could sneak in a couple of comments and that's, you know, kind of how we got to talking a little bit. But I think that that intimidation factor on certain people who are trying to tread lightly within the business that is very, very tough to penetrate. I, I can see that being quite uh, quite intimidating. But now, John, I just want to ask you here about Bundy's legacy and what kind of he thought about it because we saw the outpouring of love. We saw the amount of people that were tweeting uh, memories. Facebook has been going nuts. Everybody's sharing posts, videos, you know, photos. I mean, the, the photo that I posted on our Facebook page got, you know, shared and, and people making comments about it. Uh, but, you know, and we can touch on it in a minute. I, I didn't necessarily feel that uh, the WWE paid the proper respects. still early, so I'm going to give them somewhat the benefit of the doubt here. But what did Bundy kind of view his legacy as, John? Because WrestleMania 2, it doesn't matter if it's going to be 100 years from now. People are going to remember that big blue cage. They're going to remember basically the biggest star in the business handpicking this behemoth to, to come from another territory, come into New York, dominate, and then face him in that iconic blue cage. And uh, I think that that's really how we're all going to remember Bundy is smushing the ribs of Hulk Hogan. Yeah, it's funny. We were literally, uh, you know, a couple days ago, obviously, uh, before he passed, my last conversation with him, we were kind of like talking about how he wasn't just a main eventer in the WWF with 
Hogan, he was the main eventer before that in world class with Fritz and the few with the Von Erickson. And he you know, had a great push in Mid-South and he was squash guys. So it was like he, he knew like he was a big star. And then, and, and then he really said, you know, Hogan really put him on the map. You know, he was kind of creating his way in the territory, becoming an eventer, be, learning his craft, becoming a star, learning how to become a star. And he, he loved Hogan. I mean, he really puts Hogan over yeah. huge and said that, um, you know, for him to kind of handpick him and the way they built him up for that, I mean, it's just you know, just huge for him. But he always said he was kind of getting ready in the territory to be a main eventer. And Hogan is the one that just kind of gave him that big break. Obviously, Vince, too. But Hogan is the one that really gave him that big break and really made him that huge main event star. And he kind of felt like, wow, you know, that's what the business should be. These big, larger-than-life guys like himself and kind of controlling the business. And I think that he kind of felt like with the business changing and, and the guys getting smaller and talking about work rate and stuff, he kind of thought that his legacy was losing it a little bit. But I was, you know, as I told him, I said every year around WrestleMania, people remember who who headlined WrestleMania, who was the main event, and you know, your name always comes up. And then the Married with Children stuff, and he was in that uh, movie, Moving. You know, I mean, he he knew, I believe, it, but it's funny, he always kind of like second guess himself. And he would, it, had he known what would happen with everyone, you know, Fox News and all this coverage and everyone going crazy about it, you know, in a weird way, it would almost kind of like make him smile a little bit, like. Well, okay, everybody did remember me, and I am, you know, still yeah. remembered. Because I think in the back of his mind, he had that little hesitation, a little bit of insecurity, like, oh, people kind of forget about me. But usually around WrestleMania season, I feel like, especially around now, everyone starts to kind of remember, if you will, his legacy and the fact that this guy was the main eventer in, in, in the cage. And like Chad said, hand-picked by like, the biggest star of all time to be his opponent in a cage match to headline the biggest show of the year. Yeah, no question. I mean, you know, when you just said something a second ago, and I started, there was a picture uh, someplace I saw online today of Hulk Hogan. Uh, it was Hulk Hogan's uh, first uh, first appearance in WWF. And just, you know, you forget with the passing of time, right, just how monstrously big he was. And when I saw that picture, it took me right back to being a kid in the business and remembering those first times when Dominic sent me and Mick and a bunch of us up to do jobs. And you walk again, a very intimidating dressing to walk into. I mean, these guys are, you know, huge stars on television. Uh, you know, wrestling is really, really hot. And then you walk into the dressing room, and these guys are monstrously big. I mean, they're huge human beings. Like, when you, you know, at the time I was probably 205, 210 pounds. And, you know, you walk in, and you look at Bundy walk by, and he looks like a mountain walking. You know, and then Hogan walks by, and he looks like a mountain of muscles walking by you know and every uh, jake six foot six six foot you know just all these guys monsters you know you suddenly if you walk into that dressing room you felt like a little kid you know that, i mean because everybody in the dressing room was a giant in one way or the other they were the tall as the as a skyscraper they were wide as a mountain you know muscles like a bear uh, it was just incredible you know to walk into that dressing room very intimidating and like i said then you add on top of that just the physical stature and you add on top of that, then the stats that they had from being the guys that you watch on TV every week, uh, you know, it was a really intimidating place to walk into. And again, I want to beckon back to what I said earlier, because I think it bears repeating, uh, you know, some of the guys, not being jerks, they're busy, right? You've got promos to do, you get matched, you know, four or five, three or four matches, and they would do three or four tapes back then. 
So I'm sure the guys were busy and had a lot on their head. And I'm sure they were beat tired from the, the, the routine that they were doing on the road. Uh, but, you know, there were a handful of guys, and Chris was one of them. You know, would walk by and say, hey, kid, you know, where are you from? You know, just, you know, whatever, just some off-the-cuff remark. But just that one off-the-cuff remark made you feel like, okay, I am in the right place. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not just a bump on a log over here. Um, you know, it's uh, – and that's the kind of stuff that will always stick out to me. It always has. With Chris, every time I'd see him and, you know, he always had a smile and said, you know, always saying hello, that kind of thing. Uh, it, it, it always made me feel good whenever I saw Chris at, like, you know, at the conventions or whatever because in the back of my brain, there's that memory of Chris you know, that, that made me feel a little bit accepted, a little bit welcomed into that dressing room just by that big bastard saying hello and, hey, kid, that kind of thing. Uh, just a good guy. I definitely want to touch on what you just said in one second, but I just want to also mention with Hogan, Hogan did post, um, a few times about Bundy, which I thought was really good. And I, he posted that awesome, iconic picture of Bundy standing on Hogan's back. And I know Bundy would say this to a lot of the fans when he would sign it. This is my favorite picture of Hogan. And Hogan even said <laughs> in, in his post, this is my favorite picture of Hogan. Very, like, very funny. Like, you know, it kind of, you could tell it was bringing back some memories for the Hulkster, which is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, you know that's the one thing that, that you know, with Terry, with Hulk, right? You know, we we have our feelings on on people's work. Some like this guy better than that guy, whatever. But you know, ever since I was up there, and I remember seeing Hogan spend an extraordinary amount of time with the, the sick kids. You know, the kids that were in wheelchairs and you know uh, the Make a Wish and stuff. You know, now it would have been very easy for him to walk in and you know five minutes, ten minutes later, say, "Yeah, you know, you know Hulk is going to get ready for his match." And when it would go long, you know, because Terry would be spending an extra amount of time with those kids. And, you know, when you see those kids, how they would blossom, like a, like a flower in sunlight, you know, they just, just gush. Because Hulk Hogan was paying attention to them. You know, it's, it's like the same thing by, hey, brother, I got a big match tonight against King Kong Bundy. I Hulk's going to need some strength in my life. And he rubbed their arms and stuff. You know, and the kids would just, just blossom. You know, it was incredible to watch. So, you know, knowing that Hogan posted like that is completely in line with the Hogan that I know. You know, that he, you know, uh, you know, everybody knows my feelings on his work. But as far as a human being, that he takes the time to remember somebody like Chris, that is a fairly significant part of his history as well, uh, I think says it all. And it's great um, not to say that, like, whatever Bundy told me is like the end of Beal. But a few guys that he mentioned that he really liked always put over Hogan, always said nice stuff. And for some reason, I don't know why, he loved Shane Douglas and always said that he wanted to know know you better and he always wanted to talk to you. And whenever he saw you, you were so respectful and you always came up to him. Shane, why does he like you so much? I don't get it. What, is, what Does he not know the truth, Shane Douglas, like we know you? No, I'm just, just kidding. Just yeah. kidding. Yeah. Thank God he never watched watched on TV, right? Because uh, you know the, 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 the language and the vulgarity stuff. But no, I just uh, I always showed all those guys a ton of respect because I did look up to all of them. And like I said earlier, I wanted to learn my craft. And even though I wasn't going to wrestle a King Kong Bundy style, I'm sure he could teach me something about timing, uh, charisma. You know, there's so many other facets to wrestling, not just all based around 
you know, move to move high spot to high spot. And, you know, he was, you know, one of the top guys, you know, one of the guys who descended to the top of that mountain. You don't get there by luck and you don't get there by chance. Uh, you know, if you ascend to the places where he did, you're there for a reason. There was a reason that Hulk Hogan, you know, petitioned for him to be there, to, you know, to, to sort of uh, draft him into the WWF because he knew, you know, the one thing about Hogan was he knew that selling brought him over. So even though you can take the routines aside, you know, when he would get in that ring and sell his ass off for a big bastard like, like Bundy, you know, the fans in that building, especially the young kids, would be on the edge of their seat because their hero is getting destroyed by that big monster named King Kong Bundy. Um, and I think there's a, a lesson in there for a lot of the kids in the business today. You know, the selling is the key to our business. Hogan, being as big as he was, and he was a big son of a bitch, he knew he had to have somebody that A, could go, B, had the charisma to pull off that heel opposing him, because you know, he was such a larger-than-life personality, but also had that look and could carry himself in that way. And then you look at Bundy. You know, next to Hogan, you know, as, even as big as Hogan was, Bundy still looked like a monster. You know, so now Hogan had somebody that looked the part, knew the part, could play the role, and when it came time for the Hulkster to go into that cell, to get those kids to the edge of their seat, it was believable because King Kong Bundy filled out the role in every way I just mentioned. So, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty cool to hear that, you know, that Terry put those posts out and is paying homage and respect to, to a guy that, and in and, and large part, helped make him along the way as well. All it took was a reach. All he had to do was reach towards the ropes, towards the crowd, and that was the, uh, the power, as he used to say, and this is a Hogan Mark uh, through and through, saying the power lies in the palm of his hand. I never forget that, and that's where it was, and he was trying to reach those ropes. But let me read you this really quick here, Shane. This is from a guy you know very well, Mr. Michael Francis Foley, had this to say about King Kong Bundy. It says, The world lost a good man and a great heel with the passing of King Kong Bundy. Bundy went out of his way to put me at ease during my first journey into a WWE dressing room in the summer of 1986. I had all of one match to my credit when I was given the opportunity to work for WWE as an enhancement wrestler, and I was pretty overwhelmed and intimidated. Bundy, who only four months earlier had headlined WrestleMania 2, made it a point to say, hello, joke around with me, and make my day a little nicer. I will never forget it. That is, that is exactly what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, and I, honest to God, I haven't, I was online today, but I was working online doing things with email. I, I didn't get a chance to get on Twitter or any of the social medias. Uh, Mick, the one thing about Mick that really always impresses me is his encyclopedic memory of the business. Like that little part of the memory said, you know, who only four months before had headlined WrestleMania. Now, I would have had no clue if you said, here's a million dollars to tell me when Bundy was, I knew it was in that time frame. I didn't know if it was before, after, close to. Um, Mick has that encyclopedic memory on the business. You know, uh, hell, he probably even knows what day of the week it was when he went up there. Um, but, you know, it, it is funny to hear him say, but, it, but again, it, it, it supports what I'm saying, you know, that, that Bundy was that type of guy. And, and there were, again, not, not to 
take shots at anybody. You know, all those guys are busy, and you know, you leave one promo room, you got to run down another promo room, then you got to go make an appearance to for the, for the kids that I just mentioned, or you've got you know the some local businessman who's got a lot of money tied up in the show. You got to go meet with them. You know, this is a really busy place. Television tapings, and uh, and, and some of the guys are assholes. You know, again, raising my hand. You know, for a guy like Chris, who at that stage was arguably the top heel, or certainly one of the top three heels in that company, meaning he's one of the top top guys. You know, one of the prestigious top elite guys. He didn't have to walk into that dressing room and talk to two punks that nobody knew that had never drawn a dime in their life. Uh, and yet that was Chris. You know, it wasn't just us he said hello to. He just walked around and, you know, I think for like looking back at it, just, you know, reliving that moment in my, in my mind, you know, it seemed like he was, you know, just waltzing around just trying to kill time. But you can kill time by sitting in a chair and being bored and staring at a wall. You can walk around and say hello to some of the kids and, you know, go, go, you know, cut up with some of your friends and, you know, just sort of circulate. And, uh, and that was pretty much what Chris did. You know, he, you know, in, in the dressing room area, it was always funny to me, like once I got to know him that, uh, you know, like that, that snarl and the lip up and, you know, they're, they're just, you know, he's such an intimidating and odd looking guy, right. You know, the bald head and just massive shoulders and, um, you know, the uncle fester look almost, but, you know, backstage, he was always there was always a smile on his face. He was always, you know, be bobbing around his head. You know, go side to side because he was so big, he had almost like waddle. You know, the way his, as big as his legs were. Um, you know, but always a smile on his face and always, you know, cutting up and talking to somebody and always interested to listen. You know, he didn't just walk by and say, "Hey, kid, where are you from?" and not give a shit what your answer was. If he asked you a question, he was listening to the answer. Um, you know, again, just, you know, like like Mick said, you know, one of the good guys gone, you know, really good man. Now, we really did look for some tie-ins to you guys and see where you may have crossed paths. Uh, you definitely, you were coming in, he was leaving, and it was like he was there, and then he was gone, and you were there. So we did a little bit of research, but I will throw this one at you and kind of how you directly impacted Bundy's best year in the business. And this is going to be a little bit of a... Uh, you know, have an open mind here when you think about the landscape. Now, we all know how it was in 98. I mean, everything wrestling was on fire. I mean, it, you couldn't go two seconds without seeing a wrestling t-shirt. It, everybody was on television. Everybody was being profiled on news shows, magazines, newspapers. Everywhere you go, the wrestling business was hot. Obviously, ECW on fire. And where I feel ECW really helped impact the independent scene at the time. Bundy had said that his best year in the business was around 1998. And I got to say, I would, I would say Shane and ECW is a direct kind of, uh, you know, it's like a distant cousin to what was going on at that time uh, on the independent scene. And, and Shane, obviously, you know, everything that happened in 98 was huge. And Bundy was pretty much the top bad guy on your independent show for the good part of, I would say, the mid-90s all the way into the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What year did he leave WWF uh, for good? What was it? That was, was it was the, it was probably, so if you came in towards the, the end of the summer of 95, I would say that's about the time he was gone in 95. Yeah, I knew he was there. I couldn't remember if he was there 
when I was there, or but I remember, you know, I can remember like in general time frames, uh, not specifics like Metcam. Um, but yeah, Bundy was a guy that you know on the independence because remember for the first several years in ECW, uh, I would say probably till '95, maybe even '96, ECW was not a full time gig. Uh, you know, we were still, I was still making about 75% of my money on independent shows. Uh, you know, we'd have the ECW arena show and then that became a, like a weekend. And then, you know, as the years passed by, we started filling out other weekends, uh, during the month, but early on for like the first two, maybe three years, we were still out doing a lot of work on the independence. And, uh, you know, I would often cross Bundy, you know, I'd be on shows with Bundy on the independent scenes and things. And. You know, he was such a big draw there. You know, the reaction that he would get from the audience, uh, in large part because of his exposure in WWF, you know, and, and that and that gig with, with Hogan. Um, you know, the fans remembered it. And, you know, when you put him on a show, I always loved seeing Chris on the show because if he was on the top of the show, you could tell it was going to be a pretty well-packed uh, house show. And, you know, you could sell a lot of gimmicks and, you know, make a good payoff that sort of thing. But, you know, Chris never, in my mind, I, I, I don't ever recall ever seeing him act like, Hey, I'm the top guy. You know, I'm all that in a bag of chips and you guys are lucky to be on my show. That was not Chris's way at all. Uh, you know, the, the Chris that you saw at those conventions and cutting up with the guys and, you know, the inquisitive and asking questions, that was Chris in WWF. That was Chris on the independence. Uh, that was the way King Kong Bundy carried himself. That was the kind of human being he was. And uh, like Mick said, you know, good guy gone. Now, I know obviously you guys never wrestled, but he left WWF in the basically fall of 95, October 95. And you kind of were basically, you know, on your way in. Do you remember him at all at that point? Or is it yours really not really crossing paths because you were there, you know, well, I think you made your you know, return in August of 95. So you, do you remember kind of crossing paths? Obviously sharing a locker room together. I re if you remember the story I told about the click, uh, having a conversation about, uh, uh Pierre, um, uh, yes. yep. uh, we were staying at the days Inn at the Montreal airport. And I remember after I left the, the clicks room, getting out of there so you know, honestly I wanted to feel like I felt like going to take a shower. It was it was miserable to see what they were trying to do to this poor guy. And uh I ran into Chris. He was just coming in uh from the show. It's like I, our, my, me and PJ were in the room right off the, the uh front desk and as I was going in the room, Bundy walked in and typical you know uh, Chris, you know, said, Hey hey, hey you know Dean, Shane, Franchise, whatever he called me at the time. Uh, you know, we had a little conversation. And I remember looking down the hall and looking back when he, got, he just shook his head like, bar for the course. You know, and uh, so, yeah, he, he was still there. And I remembered that just as you were, you know, saying that, you know, about the time frame, uh, him being there and at, at, at that day's end. It is interesting, you know, like like you say, you could cross paths or you see each other even at the conventions and different things like that. I always find it interesting, like, which wrestlers click and which don't, not the click, but like which wrestlers yeah, have yeah. a connect, 
have a connection, which which don't. It, it is interesting, you know, he kind of gravitated to you. And another guy, and, and I know you're very friendly with this guy, but I mean, I'm shocked. He was very, very friendly with, and when we were uh, at WrestleCade, they had like a 20-minute conversation, and that was Rob Van Dam. It's, it's interesting that certain guys that click together, right? Yeah. Well, you know, that doesn't surprise me because Rob was uh, always very respectful of the guys before him. You know, whether it was Terry Funk, uh, Bundy, you know, Hogan, any of the guys that, that he had watched, you know, coming into the business, Ricky Steamboat. I remember he's a really, really big mark for Ricky Steamboat. And, you know, used to, like, talk to Ricky all the time and, you know, pick his brain. Um, so that doesn't surprise me at all. That That's that's Rob. You know, Rob would, uh, you know, Rob's quirky in a whole lot of ways, right? You know, Rob's Rob. But uh, he definitely always gravitated towards those guys, the stars that he had grown up watching and the guys that had been on top in the business. I'm sure for the same reason I said, you know, he can learn something from them. I mean, let's face it, Rob Van Dam style and King Kong Bundy style, worlds apart. But there's more than just move for move, spot to spot. There's, uh, you know, uh, the way you carry yourself, the charisma, the way you evoke. Bundy had that in spades. Uh, some people learn it. Some people never do. Um, Bundy could also do a great promo, you know, for a big guy, especially once you get to know him and like what a down to earth, you know, soft spoken, calm guy he is. Go back and watch some of those promos on Hogan. And, you know, if you were sitting at home, if you were a 15, 16, 12 year old kid, you were buying everything Bundy said about Hogan and knew that Hogan was in trouble if you weren't there to support him. That's a classic heel. That's what a heel's supposed to do. And Bundy, Chris and King Kong Bundy were so worlds apart. <laughs> Two diametrically opposite human beings. Bundy was that big monster mountain killer. And Chris was just a soft, big softy, soft-spoken guy. Nice. Uh, always a smile on his face. You know, worlds apart. And I'm sure that's what Rob Van Dam would have been gravitating to, to learn from him. Another thing is, it's just so you know, getting to know Chris really well, getting to know you very well. It's funny. It's like you know, these guys—they're real people. They have you know, real, you know, uh, things that they love and things that they love. And obviously, you're a huge Kiss mark. And I don't know if you know yeah. that, but Chris was a huge Elvis mark. You wouldn't think of King Kong Bundy loving Elvis, right? You know, I did know that because I rode with him one time in a car. I, more than once, but I remember one time specifically, he played Elvis over... At first, I thought he was ribbing me. Um, you know, I like <laughs> Elvis too, but I don't want to listen to him for a whole trip, right? And he played, you know, one, you know, one CD to the next, to the next, to the next, or cassette, whatever it was at the time. Um, yeah, he, I, I did know that. You know, huge Elvis fan. When we were driving down, uh, making the trip, I had uh, Sirius, and of course, there's an Elvis channel on there. So I was like, no, no way. We had to listen to Elvis for like three hours in a row. I was like, oh my God. I mean, I like yeah. Suspicious Minds and a couple of songs, but it's like, oh my God, three hours of Elvis? I just couldn't yeah. believe uh, Kiss. I mean, I love Kiss, but Elvis, come on, crazy. Well, you know, my, again, I've never had this conversation with Chris, but I would guess that as somebody getting into performance art, right, professional wrestling, you look at Elvis Presley and the way, you know, he really changed entertainment in the 50s. Uh, 
you know, I'm sure there was something there. Look, I mean, I know Lawler, same thing, you know, huge uh, Elvis Presley fan and, you know, learned, you know, worked a lot of Elvis stuff into his shtick. Uh, I'm sure that's what Chris would have been doing. You know, the right time, right age, coming into the business, wasn't that long after Elvis had died. And, you know, Elvis was a huge part of, you know, we talked today about Beyonce and, you know, who's sort of Metallica and, you know, all the bigger names in entertainment, Jay-Z, uh, you know, I, and a lot newer ones that I don't listen to. I don't even know the names if I heard them. But, you know, Elvis, you can't understate how big Elvis was. You know, they called him the king for a reason. It wasn't just because it's a little nickname. Uh, he, you know, you had entertainment, and then above that you had Elvis. And so somebody getting into, uh, you know, an entertainment genre, like professional wrestling, you know, Elvis had, he had charisma, he had the looks, he had, you know, the, 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 the way he could carry himself, you know, the first ever move like that on stage was considered obscene in the early days. Uh, you know, that was, changed the world. You know, like the Beatles would come to do the 60s and up to 1970 and Kiss later in the 70s. And you know, there's always somebody that, that each generation has. And in Chris's age group, uh, Elvis, you know, was the king. And certainly if you're going to get into entertainment, there's something you can learn from the king. Even though it's different different business, it, it really, when you boil it down to its lowest common denominator, it's entertainment. And... Uh, you know, who better learn from than the king? As far as you and Chris and have something in common, I feel like you both love being the heel, love playing that role. And, you know, you, you kind of took to it. It was uh, not so much a natural thing, but it's just one of those things that you guys work better as a heel. You think that there's the connection there with you guys that you just kind of just love, like, the art of being the heel? Yeah. You know, speaking for myself, yeah, absolutely. For me, it, you know, I always, I, I was a good baby face. You know, I, I, you know, selling and, you know, the, learning from Steamboat to fire up and make that good fiery comeback. Uh, but it never felt comfortable to me. You know, and I've always said the reason, the way I've always tried to equate it is, it's, it's really hard to make a crowd like you. You know, some, some towns, like, you know, or the heel towns, right? So you go out, doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter how hard you work, doesn't matter how pretty your moves are, the crowd's just going to boo you because it's a heel town. Uh, but as a heel, there is not a crowd that I can't piss off. Uh, you know, it's a lot easier to make somebody hate you than it is to love you. And, you know, for me, maybe it was just the perfect timing in my career, having been the baby face for as long as I had been, and then suddenly, you know, being given the opportunity as the lead heel for a company at a time when when heels didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. Uh, you know, cussing was not something that was done very routinely in, in wrestling. Uh, but the thing with ECW was, it was like, for me, just the perfect juncture of all those points where my career had come to one finite point in Philadelphia because... I had all that experience as a babyface. I had worked with some of the biggest names in the history of the business uh, and got to learn from them. And now here I am being put in a role that, honestly, at first I was intimidated of, to be the lead heel. You know, it's, it's, for the young babyfaces out there, don't be naive like I was and think it's the opposite of being a babyface. 
It's a world different. Uh, back then, the heel called the match, uh, which meant, you know, I was no longer going out and just playing Simon Says with with Arn Anderson or Bobby Eaton or 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 fill in the blank of all those great names I've worked with. Uh, that was easy. You know, Simon says, jump up and down. Simon says, stick your nose. Simon says, sell. Uh, that was easy. Being the heel, you suddenly now had to take control of the, of the match, get the baby face over, uh, enrage the crowd to build toward that specific form of the baby face would make the comeback so you didn't get crickets for the baby face. That was all now incumbent on you. Uh, it was intimidating. But once I took to it, once I had the, the franchise character to sink my teeth into, uh, it, it really did become effortless. You know, like it was just the, the moves and the spots would just pop into your head. You know, because I, a, I always knew who I was working with. I knew their arsenal. Uh, I knew what they could do, what they couldn't do. Um, and I had seen, I had been the recipient of working with incredible heels that had hid my weaknesses, you know, signed my strengths. And so I always tried to do it with the guys that I had worked with. And it was easy to sink your teeth into that because, like I said at the outset, it was easy to make a crowd hate you. Uh, you know, take some uber babyface today, uh, you know, some, you know, somebody that people just love, right? If that person would go on national television and say, hey, everybody kiss my fucking ass, I think you're all shit. I'm better. You know, of course, people go, hey, fuck you, right? I mean, it's easier to piss people off. And once you do that and get that energy flowing with the audience, uh, you know, now you know you've got them. You know, the energy is moving in the right direction. Now all you have to do is plug the pieces in. And what, gr growing up and coming into the business at the time that people like Chris were on top, you know, once I got to know him and realized that he was completely different than that character, he was nothing like that, that jerk character that he played. Uh, when it came my turn to be the heel, uh, I, I, I pulled pieces of that. You know, they, we're all... We're all plagiarizers. Every one of us, there's a, you know, every star in the business is a plagiarizer uh, because we take from the people that we watch, we admire, uh, we look up to, and at points in your career, when it's right to plug in that piece. When I was a babyface, there was nothing I could learn from King Kong Bundy, nothing I could implement from King Kong Bundy or heels like him because I was a babyface. Now as a heel, I could go out and like he was a completely different person on camera than he was backstage do the same thing you know create some character that i could sink my teeth into direct my energy toward and like i always tell people uh the franchise character and shane Douglas, two very different people but because i've voiced him out so long and played that character for so long i know how he thinks i know chris could do the same thing with king kong bundy turn it on on a dime you know, he, he could be sitting there telling you a joke and put a camera in his face and boom, King Kong Bundy emerges. Uh, that's the mark of a great heel. And, you know, I, I was the recipient of being able to watch guys like that work and pick all those pieces up. You know, like, you know, the fact that he was different on camera than he was backstage. As a baby face, it's an extension of you. You know, you're trying to you know, build off of you and get people to like you based on who you are. As a heel... You're going out and creating something completely different that's meant to enrage people, meant to piss people off, and that's a lot easier to do. And he was great at it, and may have been uh, one of the best 
ever. And before we get into the wrap-up, I just want to address very quickly, we've alluded to it in this episode, we alluded to it in our two-man power trip intro, and I don't know, Shane, I don't even think we really smartened you up to what was going on with it, but we were planning on doing another podcast in addition to this show with Bundy, and we're kind of working out some kinks behind the scenes and trying to figure it out. We had something in mind, um, and, and Bundy seemed to be very enthusiastic about it and was uh, trying to come up with, he wanted to do segment ideas and, and kind of make it more yeah. of a produced like radio show style uh, show, which I thought would be different because you know he could record one segment here and he could record one segment there and it can be added into post-production where it's different. And he listened to uh, some episodes of what we do here and, and be different than what we do instead of throwing topics back and forth and chit-chatting. He wanted to kind of yeah. focus in on a, this is, you know, Bundy on bullshit. This is Bundy on this. This is Bundy on that. And it, and it seemed very interesting. And we had one planning call where we were discussing it. And John and him went back and forth and back and forth. And uh, John said as, as much as they were trying to schedule it, there would always be a delay. And he was putting it off. And obviously maybe just, you know, maybe there were some health problems that he, did, he was experiencing at night when we record. So it didn't work out. But that's kind of what... We've been alluding to in mentioning it here. We mentioned it on Two Man Power Trip. So uh, the world almost had the Five Count Podcast with uh, King Kong Bundy. Is that John? Was that the official name? Was it the Five Count Podcast? Yes. Yep, that was going to be the official name. And he kind of he was he was pushing off a little bit, but then he kind of was saying he kind of wanted to release his like closer to Mania, probably because that's kind of when you get the most eyeballs and, and eardrums listening to wrestling is usually around mania time so i mean uh, maybe that was part of it as well and we kind of wanted to like build up to it a little bit but uh you know who knows maybe i guess it just wasn't uh, wasn't meant to be i guess so to speak well the one thing i can say for certain is it would have been entertaining um you know because i think the fans getting a chance to finally hear chris Pally's and King Kong Bunny said he could seamlessly move between the two. Uh, that that's to me, that's what I think fans are interested in: podcasts and uh, in the conventions, and you know, all these you know shoot interviews, that sort of thing that that, that, that we've seen so much of in the last ten years. Was that Bundy, that character that that evoked so well in those early years of WWE, WWF? Uh, the guy that played that, Chris Pally's, you know, later would go on to do, you know, comedy and, and so many other things. He was a very entertaining guy. Uh, and it's sad to hear that, that he didn't get a chance to do it because I think he would have brought something different to the podcast market. And, you know, and, you know, today everybody's got a podcast, right? Uh, but it's, like you said, it's hard to do something different. Um, I think the world lost out. The, the, the wrestling fans, especially, that would have gotten a chance to that it may have never wasn't born when Chris was wrestling, King Kong Bundy was wrestling, would have got a chance to to hear him speak, hear him get his take on those big angles, and, and when the wrestling went massive like it did, uh, what his role was in that. I think it would have been a hell of an interesting podcast to listen to. I'm sorry to hear that that it didn't get a chance to come to fruition because it would have been. Damned interesting to hear. It would have been, and uh, unfortunately, we never got into recording. And um, you know, like John said, maybe it wasn't meant to be, but the uh, the plan was there. The execution was uh, just about to be there, 
and we never got to pull the trigger. But before we wrap it up here, uh, we want to thank everybody for tuning in and taking a listen to this. This was a lot of fun, and uh, it felt good to, to talk about Bundy in this way and really get his legacy out there. And whether or not you are an old-school fan or not and you watched him, go back and watch him. Go back and experience some of the matches because in addition to all the great WrestleMania 2 buildup, there's so much out there in terms of the libraries that either WWE has acquired or you can still find sporadically via YouTube. You can find his time in world class out there. You can find his time in Japan out there where, you know, you can see a very early Hulk Hogan versus King Kong Bundy match, but in Japan. So please go out of your way to uh, honor the legacy of Chris Pally's and um, watch pick five matches. How about that? That, that? I think that sounds apropos. Five count. How about five matches of Bundy? Go ahead and enjoy that and come back and listen to us next week. Uh, we had a whole agenda set up. Don't know if we'll go back to that one since it's already uh, <laughs> since it's already been written. It kind of is easy to go back to that since we already have it written down. But also uh, maybe dealing with an Ask Franchise Anything episode here in a couple weeks as well. So a couple things on the, uh, the, the burner for us. We'll let that simmer and we'll figure it out. But if you want to get in touch with us, please do so. Reach out to us on Twitter at the franchise SD at Two Man Power Trip at Wrestling Pal and at the Three Threat Pod. Send us questions, send us comments. See where Shane's been, see where Shane's going, see what's next for everybody, and uh, we can share that world of social media. We can share that world of the Triple Threat Podcast uh, directly with all the fans and the listeners. And we thank you so much for the support. Head over to TMPTofWrestling.com. Get all of the TMPTCon three information there and i will kind of i'll let the plugs just kind of stop where they are before we get to you shane i just want to get john back in for one second john send off uh, bundy if you can one last comment uh before we get it over to the wrap here of the show definitely one of those guys totally misunderstood such a great guy such a great heart such a good friend definitely gonna miss our weekly conversations tell you that much yeah, very well said. He's going to be sorely missed. And Shane, where are you going to be this weekend? What's going on in the world of the franchise? I know you're heading out in Virginia, but uh, where's the franchise going to be this weekend in the uh, the wild world of professional wrestling? Well, this coming Friday, uh, day after tomorrow, Dominic Tanucci and I are going to be in Johnstown, Pennsylvania at the First Summit Arena, the Cambria County uh, uh, War Memorial. Uh, for the uh, local hockey team there, we're going to make an appearance. I did a puck, uh, a puck drop at the beginning of the game. Looking forward to it. That's where Slapshot was uh, filmed with Paul Newman and you know the uh, the, the uh, brothers that became later in ECW the uh, uh, the Dudley Boys. Uh, their their homage. Uh, so looking forward to. It. I've never been to a hockey game there. I've wrestled there many times, but that's what Dominic and I will be on Friday night. Uh, uh, thanks to uh, Valley Printing. Uh, there in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, a lot of good guys there, uh, and a great lady. The, uh, the, 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 the owner of the place, uh, she's a real pistol. So if you get a chance to get anything printed in Johnstown, go go to Valley Printing and, uh, and see the queen of Valley Printing. Uh, she's a, quite a lady. Uh, then Saturday night, uh, of course, I'll be flying out for Hampton, uh, Virginia, uh, at the high school, 7.30 on Saturday night, and I will be wrestling... Uh, 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 Steve Carino's son there. So uh, looking forward to that. Like I said, I did an interview with Fox uh, radio station down there today, and we talked about uh, the connection to ECW, you know, what the difference of the business then and now was. And I said, uh, 
taking a stab in the dark here, being Steve Carino's son, I'm pretty sure that uh, it's it's quite likely that you know he, he's you know learned a thing or two from his dad and about professional wrestling. Uh, so looking forward to to wrestling him, uh, Colby Carino uh, on Saturday night. And he was actually on uh, WWE TV this week. He had a, uh, a match on Two Hundred Five Live. Really good for him. Good, good kid. So now he's TV star Colby Carino. But you'll be down there. <laughs> I, hope has, I hope he has better hair than Steve did, though. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, looking forward to it. And, and uh, it's been a while since I've been down to Virginia, so looking to get down there and find out what's going on with the governor, the, uh, the, the assistant governor, the number three in line. <laughs> I'm curious to see what's going on in the state there. What, you know, how are things hanging down there? <laughs> when you're flying over, when you're flying over, just look down and you can see all the people scrambling and running around the, uh, the, the, <laughs> the building there in Richmond and seeing who's going to be the next one in charge. But it's, uh, this was a great show. Uh, I'll just throw my last comments on Bundy. Uh, will be eternally missed is uh, absolute irreplaceable legend of professional wrestling. And uh, thank you very much for all the memories and all the, uh, the laughs here in the last couple of months. And uh, I really, uh, at the end of the day was very sad that I never had his phone number. So there you go. I will, uh, <laughs> I'll admit the, uh, I'll admit falling for the rib here at the end, but Shane, I'm going to hand it over to you. Uh, please take us out in only the way the franchise can and get us on to a uh, big number in episode next week, uh, format TBD. So, Shane, the floor is yours. Uh, normally, I'm taking out a, a little bit of fiery oratory, but today we're going to do it. Uh, great memories of uh, uh, Chris Pally's uh, King Kong Bundy. Like I said, the wrestling business has lost uh, one of the good guys. Uh, and like you said, if, if the fans listening haven't had yet the chance, see King Kong Bundy, go back and look at five of his matches. Better yet, watch five of his promos. Uh, and uh, as you're watching those promos or matches or both, think about the things we were talking about with Chris here. Uh, uh, wrestling lost a great guy, but the world also lost a, uh, a hell of a nice guy. And, and I think we always need more of those. So uh, thank you to, to Chris and King Kong Bundy for uh, training this snot-nosed kid from New Brighton, Pennsylvania, teaching me a few things along the way. Uh, being such a great guy and a good friend, somebody to look up to. Uh, but next week, number 85, make sure you're here or get your ass franchised. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.